Okay, as we begin our study tonight, it will be in Daniel, the book of Daniel. I'd like for you to open to chapter 1. And may I also say that uh, aren't you glad that the Lord is long-suffering, that he has a sense of humor, that he puts up with people like me, and like you also. But uh, uh, I, I thought, as I was preaching this morning, and it was corrected later on, but I, I thought, did I really say that? I had the disciples, I think, picking up a foul instead of a, a foe at first. And, and I had the uh, disciples uh, not, not only doing that, but I had uh, Jesus, the prophet of old, being uh, a Gentile and, and a humble person or a, instead, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a gentle and humble person. I'll tell you what, man, uh, you know, if I could just get through one that's uh, perfect and great, that would be wonderful, so... And here we come to chapter 1, and it's no telling what I might say tonight. Okay. I may just, uh, when I say some things, I may just let Haley stand up and, and uh, correct me and, and, and give me the correct pronunciation and all that. So, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> okay. First chapter that we're going to be looking at in Daniel has a lot to do with our character and our commitment to the Lord. In other words, what will it be? Compromise or commitment? Simple as that. Compromise or commitment. And these young men were faced with this. And so we'll read uh, beginning with verse 1. And I won't read uh, all the chapter, but we're just going to be covering verses 1 through 7. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, this is so very important because the kingdom had divided. There was the north and the south. And this was after Solomon. And there was a reign of kings uh, in the north and some in the south. And, and because of their uh, disobedience, and because of them not following the Lord and his commandments, then uh, God allowed this judgment to uh, fall upon them. Simple as that. And we're going to be looking at this. And so he, uh, we see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he came in and he took, he had the, uh, first of all, he, he took away these that were uh, of youth, that seemed like they were bright, that seemed like he could use them, it seemed like he could bring them up and train them the way that he would like for them to go so that they could serve him uh, best in his court. You know, that's, that's so very important because I, I want us to think about it. Used to, when I was growing up, uh, people would say, we need a youth minister. And we would call a youth minister in because they thought, hey, we need to train these youth before they go off to college. And this is ripe age to get them and to train them. Well, really, we found out after uh, we started doing that that it's way before there, then, isn't it? I mean, it's with the children. It's with the really young. And this king had something in concept that was correct. Let's take these young people and let's train them up in the way that we want them to go. Let's indoctrinate them let's get their minds thinking their lives accepting their uh their ways becoming the way of us and this is what they did to begin with i don't know if you've ever heard about or heard the old adage god won't put you where he can't keep you well a lot of people would disagree with that you probably heard that haven't you but God doesn't put us where he can't keep us. Now, you say, well, I've changed job after job after job, or we've moved here, moved there because of the situation. We started in the inner city, and then it became, uh, uh, you know, too violent, and so we moved out, and then we moved further out and all this. Uh, well, sometimes God does move us. He does allow us to change. But he never puts us where he can't keep us. For what he wants to accomplish there and you know we we think about this and we say well you know I look at my family and I look at my children who've gone off to college and 
sent them to get a good education, and uh, now I don't even know who they are. I was talking with someone just this past week, not from around here, and they said, you know, they, they sent them off to get an education. They taught them a certain way, and now they don't have anything to do with what they believe, or they believed at one time. So it's, uh, you know, people do question that. But another question that we need to bring up during this time is, you know, how far can we engage our culture without compromising our convictions? Because we're going to have to engage it to a degree. So, but how far do we go? And that's one of the things that we need to learn. And we can learn from these men about that. We can learn how to be steadfast in the midst of trials and temptations and, and how far we can engage our culture without compromising our convictions. You know, uh, should we send our children to public school? That's one of the big things today. Should we send them off to a public college? Well, you know, we need to pray about it and see if we prepared them well. <laughs> That's one thing. Because if we haven't prepared them well, I guarantee you they will prepare them well when they go off because they will indoctrinate. So, you know, we, we need to understand that. We need to teach our children and teach especially the young people while they are young so that they can engage in society, in our culture. How do we respond to conflicts of conscience in a pagan culture? Should we uh, take a stand against our culture? These are some questions that we need to ask. If so, how should we take that stand? That's very important. Or should we just assimilate into it blend into it and just justify our compliance in, uh, in the uh, interest of what a lot of people call today love or our families. We're changing because of our families and what they brought home to us or because of our career. A lot of it, though, deals with cowardice. It's a it's very attractive in a culture that uh, presents opposition and difficulty to us. It's, it's very easy to give in. And so, unfortunately, this is the, uh, uh, you know, time when we must teach our children to take a stand. And take a stand in the right way. Our children will be attacked and they will be indoctrinated. And we need to teach them this. And this is a good passage to teach from. Our livelihoods will be threatened. I guarantee you they are already being threatened. You talk to some of the people who have had to close down their stores because of their convictions. And then our churches will be forced to conform. To conform to what the government wants us to do. Or our culture wants us to do. Because we're being too mean or we're not understanding or not accepting. You see, we need to examine Daniel and his friends' response to the conflicts that they were in. Conflicts that dealt with their conscience while in a pagan society. The background here, as we've already talked about a little bit, having soundly defeated the Egyptians at uh, Carchemish, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, he was riding the waves of victory southward through Syria and pa uh, Palestine, swallowing up smaller nations like Judah on the way. And the assault on Jerusalem resulted in Jehoiakim's quick surrender and an agreement that Judah would be a vassal state. And this was a major turning point in Hebrew history. 
for it marked the beginning of what we're going to talk about throughout Daniel. And that is a phrase that says the times of the Gentiles. A period in which Gentile nations would dominate the land. And no king from David's line would sit on Israel's throne. At the second advent, we know that Christ will restore Israel as a glorious nation and he will usher in the millennial kingdom. But until then, it's the times of the Gentiles. And the first Gentile king that we're looking at is, is uh, to trample Jerusalem underfoot was Nebuchadnezzar. When this happened, the king took what he wanted from the temple, the treasures, and also a, gr a group of uh, the finest young men from Judah as his private servants. So it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He took it. And the Lord, and this is so important. We looked at this this morning. God is sovereign. He is in control, right? Look at this passage. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. This is so important. You start talking about judgment, and you start talking about maybe what's happening. God is trying to get our attention. And people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that today, especially. Many of them, and many of them in church. It's not, you know, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a moment, but it, it's not Mother Nature out there causing this. God is the one in control. And so, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in, in, into his hands, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Sinar to the house of his God, and brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now let's look at the reason, a little bit more closely, the reason for captivity. Uh, look very carefully at the reason why uh, the Israelites were uh, captured, taken into captivity, and why this happened, what, what allowed for this to come about. Captivity was brought about, and listen very carefully, because of a form of judgment. It was a form of judgment on the Israelites. Yes, God's people. The judgment came for two basic reasons. The first one, the Israelites had not observed the Mosaic law that specified what? Every seventh year, the land was what? Not to be farmed. Since it was a sabbatic year, a year of rest for the land. Why? Because this symbolized that the earth belonged to whom? God. But apparently the Israelites had not observed this law for 490 years because the writer of Chronicles states that the captivity was 70 years in length. And to fulfill the Lord, the word of the Lord by mouth, the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years in second chronicles in chapter 36 it is a good thing that the lord is long-suffering just think about that he was very patient for for 500 years god had been patient with his people how long has he been patient with his people here in america but his patience finally ran out that divine patience was exhausted in 722 B.C. for the northern kingdom of Israel. The cruel Assyrians besieged Israel's capital there. That was the north. Now the south. God's patience 
now has run out with them. God's patience has limits because he is a God of justice. God isn't going to stand by and hear me out. He's not going to stand by and let sin continue without its judgment time. It will come. As individuals and as nations or as churches, he will judge sin if we don't do something about it. It's foolish to think that God will never intervene to judge whether it's a nation or an individual. That's just not biblical thinking. God will. Modern day society would do well to listen, to receive, and to heed this lesson. Yes, God is long-suffering, but he is also holy and just, and we can thank God for that because if he wasn't, sin would run rapid. Chaos would be everywhere. And we need to understand that it's foolish to think that God does not nor will not intervene to judge whether it's an individual or a nation. It doesn't matter either whether we're a true, I'll say, Judeo-Christian nation or not. Does God not judge both the righteous and the unrighteous? Yes. And then the second thing. God's judgment also fell on Judah for her gross sin of idolatry. Israel had been allowing evil practice in the forms of Jeroboam's calf to be practiced along with the worship of Baal, bringing in different kinds of worship. Not just saying that God is the only way, but allowing other things to be brought in. And so there were even idolatrous orgies in Jerusalem, unfortunately, history says. And judgment came, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now I want to ask you something. Should we not be thinking, and I know the thought before I even start saying this, well, we always have this, but look at the rapidness and the and intensity and the increasing of it should we not be concerned about the fires the floods the hurricanes the tornadoes the earthquakes the diseases it's you know it's not mother nature who is in charge it's god mother nature may be crying out because of this sin in the world crying out to God, but God will be the one who takes care of it. He's the one who controls it. So with this siege of Jerusalem in 605 B.C., Daniel 1, we are introduced to the great theme here that God uses human instruments to accomplish his will. Nebuchadnezzar here. But God is always in control. It doesn't matter whether it's today, Iran, China, or whomever, Russia, it could be, and they overtake us or some other country, or if we uh, implode within, it is still God is in control. If that were to happen, God forbid, but it could. Rulers and governments can go only as far as God has established them to go. Only as far. But he will let it happen to, for our best interest, if necessary, to bring us to our knees so that we might seek him. God's plan is often accomplished in ways his people do not understand such as through oppression or sufferings or captivity. But he works through these to get our attention so often. 
Let's look at the reaction to their surroundings. How would you react if you were taken into captivity, if you were taken from your family, if you were taken away as a young child and re-educated and not even maybe allowed to have your own family? Maybe made a eunuch to serve in the king's court where you couldn't even have any children. How would you react? How do you react when things don't go your way today? When we don't get what we want, when we get aggravated over someone or some situation, how do we end up acting or reacting? Now pray for me as I read this. Huh. You know, it's, it's, I would love it if they would just been named Mike, Haley, you know, whatever, uh, Richard, Tim, you know, any of these, Freddie, even Bobby. <laughs> then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family, and of the noble youths in whom was no defect who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years. They got their master's degree, whatever, here, you know. At the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel. I got that one right. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Then the commander of the officials answered new names, or assigned, excuse me, new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned what? Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Whew. God didn't ask Daniel and his three friends to distance themselves. That's very important, people. He didn't ask them to distance themselves from their surroundings, to stay away from the king, to run. Instead, God had them engage with the culture. How far? We'll see. For now, these three young Israelites were to connect with and help a pagan government. In essence, help a pagan go government, not run from it. You see, God has not called Christians to run from culture, has he? From our society, from the people that surround us, that don't believe the way that we believe. He's just given us and allowed us the word of God and the Holy Spirit to live within us and training in our homes. And this is why we need to make a great deal about training young children, not just in church. We only have them one, two hours. But training them and helping the parents to train them in their homes. I mean, train them in the Word of God. Let them know that the Word of God is the Word of God. And that they really believe it and that they're living by it. And their children see this. Letting them know and see how God is at work every day. Helping these parents to do this. So this is what he's called the church to do. This is what he called these young uh, men, uh, young Hebrew friends to do of Daniel. Daniel and his young Hebrew friends. But they could not do that without having ab abided in God. And having been a person who was continually abiding in God, depending upon Him for direction, for strength, for protection. You see, they had already gotten the training. 
before they went into the graduate program to know what the graduate program taught and where it went wrong and how to confront it. Many Christians, <clears throat> we, you know, that we work for people who do not know the Lord. And I want to tell you, some of them are very evil. They're crooked in their dealings. The four Hebrew children needed to know when to draw the line with their decisions. Their maturity to make the right decisions, it involved depending upon God and His wisdom. Not trying to work it out themselves, by themselves, but working it out with God, asking for His wisdom. God would give them wisdom as to know where they were to draw the line. Do we really believe that? Have we done that in our lives? Have we depended upon God's wisdom for our decisions? Do our children know it? Have they seen it? Have they been taught it? Not everyone is capable of handling this assignment. God knew who to send there or allow to be sent there. Nebuchadnezzar needed to be introduced to the true God. He needed to know him. He needed to see him at work in these lives. And God had placed them in the court for a purpose. God has a purpose for everything. He's not like us. A lot of times we do things without a purpose. He doesn't do that. The Israelites needed to be disciplined. They also were placed there for witness. Believe it or not. God is not without reason. God always does things with a goal, with a purpose. We therefore need to prayerfully seek God. We need to keep our eyes open to what He is wanting with us where we are. What He wants to accomplish in each and every situation that we're in. These four Hebrew children believed that they had been placed in Babylon, I believe, for a purpose. And that purpose was because of Israel's sin, but also, while they were there, to help the pagan government see God in and through their lives, how they handled things. The main thing we need to see is, is a reaction of the Hebrew men. What was their reaction? Their reaction was a reaction of faith, wasn't it? I mean, they trusted God. They didn't become angry and they didn't become bitter like we do so often. And I want you to be honest with yourself. How often have you been faced with a situation where it's gotten the best of you? More than once, I would assume. I have. But they did not become bitter and angry. They remained faithful to the Lord because they were walking by His strength and power. In his wisdom. When we don't know what is happening. When we can't figure out why we're where we are. When our circumstances don't make sense. Or when we believe that you know, we're where we are because of judgment. But the judgment was on because of other people being unfaithful. Not because of you being unfaithful. When things don't seem fair and when things seem difficult that's when it's really tough how do we view our circumstances what is our reaction to the situation that's what God is looking for do we become angry you know we ought to be pretty honored I guess when we're put in situations like that because God wouldn't put us in a situation that we couldn't handle with his by his grace and, and his power and he thought high enough of us to allow us in that situation to help us grow and, and to depend more upon him during that time uh, and to learn from him. Uh, you know, he thought that much of us to allow us to be placed in that situation. And he's not going to put us where we can't face the situation properly. And so in turn, we see that, that we ought to look at it that way. You see, the Israelites, they needed to be disciplined. But these were, seemed to be faithful men. And so, as they were placed there, we, uh, we look at it, we see that these men remained faithful to
to the Lord. When we don't know what is, why it's happening and what, what all's involved there, and, and as far as we know, we've been true to the Lord, we need to watch for our reactions. We need to look at how we are facing the situation. And we need to remember that God is in control and he has us there for a purpose. And for us not to become bitter towards him. And it's not always easy, is it? It's hard most of the time. But let's look at what to expect when we engage in our culture. Why it's important to be prepared and equipped when engaging with our society. The risks that are involved with engagement. Remember, God didn't ask the Hebrew children to distance themselves. From the pagan culture. He had them engage it. And that engaging meant that there would be risk. And here we're going to look at some of the risks. They were immersed in Babylonian culture in order to serve the pagan king. The king set high bars. He wanted them the best of the best to be uh, serving him. And so uh, the king's indoctrination involved risk on the part of Hebrew children. What were they, what were the risks? Well, the risk, first risk was involving education. Hebrew children were to be re-educated. If they were to be of value to Nebuchadnezzar, they needed to be re-educated in the Chaldean education. They were to be indoctrinated or brainwashed so they would no longer think or act like Judeans but like Babylonians. Now, why do you think, I know all professors are not this way in secular schools, but why do you think the liberal professors are that way? They want you to think what? The way they think. It's, it's no longer a balanced situation, if it ever was, where there's a good debate and, and that we're willing to listen to both sides and come out thinking for ourselves, deciding what is, uh, which way is best. Now you hear in the news how they become angry. The council uh, culture becomes angry if you don't listen to them and uh, become indoctrinated like them. And this is the same way here. They wanted them to be, there was no other way. They wanted them to be indoctrinated that way. You know, Major Jerry Singleton, he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam War, and, and he was there for seven years and, and, uh, as a prisoner, and, and he described in detail how the Vietnamese soldiers attempted to re-educate him and his fellow uh, prisoners. How'd they do it? Well, over loudspeaker in their room came a constant, a uh, barrage of uh, propaganda night and day with the purpose of trying to get them to change their political ideas. And someone asked him when he was, the war was over and he was home, how was he able to resist? And he replied quietly but firmly that it was because he had Christian convictions and because the Lord strengthened him. He depended upon the Lord, and he wasn't going to listen to that. Even though it was beating him down, and they were beating him down day in and day out, him and the other soldiers. You see, for three years the Babylonians tried to brainwash Daniel and his Hebrew friends. <clears throat> they were exposed to Babylonian education at its very best, or should I say at its worst, pagan worst. Their goal was to change their way of thinking. But that wasn't the only way, the education. There was the risk and also involved the uh, patterns of living. Look, it says in verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. You see, Daniel and the others were to eat the food set before them and drink the drink that was set before them. We don't know exactly what they were, what the food was, but it was unacceptable for them. It wasn't kosher. Probably been offered to idols. 
But the main thing is what it signified. What did it signify? Well, one thing for sure is their goal was to change the Hebrews' way of living. To accept a different kind of lifestyle. God's people today must be aware of the enemy's brainwashing program. Satan would love to change our patterns of living, wouldn't he? And thinking until we are conformed to this present age and culture. Now, Ginsburg, the uh, Supreme Court jurist, right? That, yeah, judge that just died, passed away at, at uh, what age? 87, cancer. She, had a, she did a lot of good work. She, she did. And one thing was, uh, you know, she fought for the uh, rights of women. But she also wanted the rights of other groups like the LGBT. And she fought for that. Some people would say that she's great because of that. But the rights of women, that's a gender thing, right? And it's pay and all this. The other may have gender involved, but it's more of a lifestyle. And when you start, I can see the women, and, and this is just me, I can see the women's rights and all this, but the other, if a person doesn't want to, with conviction as far as a lifestyle, doesn't want to hire someone or, uh, you know, have that part, in, you know, uh, be a part of their, um, their business, uh, then they ought to have a right also, it seems like. Uh, but see, this is the way the world thinks. And like I said, I'm not taking away from her. She, she was, you know, she was a good judge in a lot of ways. Uh, she did a lot of uh, great things, but, uh, you know, and especially for, for women and equal pay and all that. But we, we need to be careful about way, what we involve and what we accept. Now, I want to tell you, the LGBT, as far as my Bible is concerned, I just see where that is wrong. I see where it's a wrong lifestyle. And I don't think that we ought to be, as believers, going contrary to strong convictions and having to go contrary to strong convictions. And we need to be very careful about this. You know, one day through a faculty, uh, or not faculty, faulty procedures, Automated machines produced a large number of, now listen to this, syringes that became contaminated. Therefore failed the inspection. Karen was the mother's name. She was wife committed to uh, Christ. And she worked there, had a good job. She reported it to her boss, this problem. He quickly computed the cost of reproducing the order. And because of much money that would be lost in replacing the syringes, you know what the boss ordered? He ordered Karen to sign the inspection clearance because she was the only one that could because she found this and it was in her area despite the uh, contamination. Now, she was faced with something that the world would just push under the cover, push under the rug. It's okay to make profit, not to lose money. What do you think she did? She refused. Because of certain federal regulations, only she could sign the clearance forms. Well, they went further. They called in the president of the company. And the superior visited her 
and also computed the cost of reproduction and told her that if she did not sign the forms on Monday, her job would be in jeopardy. Now, this is not a made-up story. Much more than Karen's job would be in jeopardy, though. This was her only means of income. It was a well-paying job, and it could not easily be replaced. Her husband, Randy, was a full-time student at a seminary, and the family's future were severely in danger. The hopes, the dreams, the career plans of many years could be shattered as a result of the choice. And they were faced with what to do. They were faced with what they had been taught in books and in seminars and in classes of what they should do. They were faced with that in reality. Now we, most of us, are taught what to do. We hear from our Sunday school teachers. We read in our devotions. We hear our preacher preach. But we so often are not faced with that. And I want to tell you, we may be in the future more of it. So what did she do? Did she approve it? What would you do? I'm not going to tell you this week. You'll have to come next week to hear. And then we have the risk involving worship. Now from among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officers assigned new names to them. Well, uh, to Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The king decided to change Jewish names. That's not too bad, is it? Just change your name? Yeah, when these names reflect some aspect of God's nature, and it did. I mean, they didn't. Today, I don't guess it would matter if they changed names because we don't, you know, none of them mean anything, most, or most of them don't. But, uh, man, I can't, you talk about these names, I can't even pronounce half the names today, but, uh, and a lot of you can either. You'll, you'll look at them. It wouldn't be much to change a name, but back then it meant a lot because they named a child accordingly. And so it took on significant aspects to their nature, the nature. And so the, here, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was wanting to change their names to gods that he worshipped. Daniel was changed to Belshazzar, probably meaning Baal's prince, and Baal was a tile for a demonic god, uh, Marduk, and it would be like having your name changed to Satan's prince. And probably some of these groups would love that, these rock groups. And so this new name was given to, to Daniel, and it invoked a pagan deity. And the king had done this to all four of the Hebrew children. And all these honoring Hebrew names were re replaced with pagan names that honored the Babylonian gods, each reflecting the culture of the day. What was the goal? Well, those names reminded them of the God who they worshipped. Their Hebrew names. The pagan names, he was trying to change it so that it would change their type of worship who they would accept. They were overwhelmed with various kinds of pagan ideas regarding sexuality and meaning of life and of the mythology of the Babylons. And so, these Hebrew children though, if you'll look in verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Today God's people are being indoctrinated into the culture of the day. And Satan would love to do the same to us. He would love for us to uh, accept the ways of life. 
that are being accepted in our society, in our culture, and some are accepting that. Now, I'm not talking about non-religious people. I'm talking about religious people. Supposed to be spiritual people. Supposed to be Christians. They're accepting this. We are faced with the pervasive and powerful influence of the media, the internet, the television, the press, the tweets, the Facebooks. But just imagine being 14 to 16 years of age and having to move from your family, your country, your place of worship, your education. And imagine being forced to take college-level courses in a foreign language, constantly barraged by pagan philosophy, and surrounded by the intimidating sights and sounds of the big pagan city. You know, for them, there was no going home for the summer. A lot of these students over here, they go home for the summer. No vacation from school or anything. It was a consistent day in and day out brainwashing in the ways of the world. These men had every reason because of what they've been deprived of, and that was their teenage years and their college years. These men had every reason to, reason to hate the king and the empire for their cruelty, for stealing their freedom, for trashing their own faith commitment. This was quite a test of their faith. Just imagine how many dreams died with these men. Dreams of a family, a home, beloved city. And they were replaced with Nebuchadnezzar's way of life. What would you do? Would you stand firm? Are we teaching our children to stand firm? To oppose this kind of thing. And to do it in the right way. You know we don't have to be obnoxious like sometimes others are. We can just stand firm and know what we believe. And walk away. Because you see we're not going to change a person's mind. Or a person's way of life. Only God's going to do that. He may use us as we do it in the right way. And depend upon him. But we're not going to change. Preacher with a daughter. You know, we went, we went before I end with this, we, we went to our uh, youngest son's soccer game. It was 30 minutes today after church. I stayed for church. Y'all know that. And we went out there to watch her. She was real cute in her outfit. She's all decked out. And I looked at all these people out there. Nothing wrong with the ball game. Nothing wrong with learning team sport, playing, having a good time. I wondered how many of those went to church that day, today. I wonder how many of them put as much emphasis with their child in God as they did in that. There was a preacher with a daughter who enjoyed soccer. And she was good at it. She was good enough to, uh, to make the select team. The girl was very excited until she found out that the games that she, were going, she was going to have to play on, most of them were on Sunday. Well, the preacher called the coach. And he talked to him and he told him, he said, you know, my daughter can play, but only on the games that are not on Sunday. You know what his coach said? He told him that if she played, she had to play on Sunday. She could not be on the team otherwise. Really disappointed this young girl. She made the select team. But Becca... She decided with her parents to be a dad and not play. If it meant 
spending time with others her age and spending time with the adults at church and worshiping God. See, we have to make choices. These Hebrew children had to make choices. And we're not going to make the right ones unless we have a heart for God and depend upon Him. That decision will not come. Not the kind of uh, decision that will come that will glorify God in His kingdom. It only comes by abiding in Him and He in us. His words abiding in us and us spending time with God. Now, I know some people, they'll say, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, like I said, there's nothing wrong with the game. Nothing wrong with having a good time. Nothing wrong with teaching children. But how much time? And what are we teaching children when we don't, when we choose that over God? I mean, we're just talking about one day a week. For most people that come, and that's on Sunday morning, one time a week. What are we teaching our children? Each other. Well, we'll see some more about that next week. Let's all stand. Father, as we uh, and as we have this opportunity of worship and time for you to make the decision uh, very evident in our hearts and our minds if it's not made already to, to, uh, to do I pray that we'll be obedient and that we'll make that decision God will honor it and we'll glorify you thank you God for loving us thank you for being with us and Lord, we can't do the right thing without you and your help. And you don't even put us in situations and places and circumstances that we can't handle by depending upon you and your grace. You don't want to see us stumble. You want to see us honor you. So help us to be that kind of people. In Jesus' name.